Today's show is brought to you by IBM. By the end of this podcast, nearly 10,000 new malware variants will have launched. Now AI can help protect your data from threats wherever it lives with IBM Security. Let's put smart to work. Learn more at ibm.com smart. I'm Kara Swisher, executive editor of Recode. You may know me as the general in charge of the militia Etheridge, but in my spare time, I talk tech and you're listening to Recode Decode, a podcast about tech and media's key players, big ideas and how they're changing the world we live in. Today in the red chair is Chris Kirchhoff, a former partner at the Pentagon's Silicon Valley office, D-I-U-X, which stands for Defense Innovation Unit Experimental. What a name. It funds private companies in exchange for commercial products that can solve national defense problems. He's also a visiting technologist at Harvard University's Institute of Politics. Chris, welcome to Rico Decode. Thank you. So when I met you, you were working for Ash Carter. Is that correct? Is I was. That, explain the, the, this DUIX because I think it's really interesting. There's, you know, the CIA has an innovation unit here. All kinds of government agencies do, but Ash was a real uh, techophile. You have to give him credit yeah. for his vision. The, so back he's in the defense uh, secretary under President Obama, he, he was. But in 2001, he was merely Professor Ash Carter at mm-hmm. the Kennedy School of Government, and he wrote an article that said the rate at which commercial R&D is growing Mm -hmm. is quickly going to surpass what the federal government, the Defense Department spends on R&D. And so, you know, less than a generation from now, uh, the Defense Department is going to have a real problem. It's going to be out of touch unless it pivots to private Mm -hmm. R&D. And so he he wrote that article in 2001, of course, fast forward in, in 20. Uh, 15, he becomes Secretary of Defense, and one right. of his first initiatives is essentially uh, making that pivot happen. And right. So that's where uh, myself and three other founding partners get launched out here to Silicon Valley. So explain how you got here, because we, we had Ash on the show when he was Defense Secretary. It was a great show. Um, and he had some really interesting stances on a lot of things, like encryption. He parted ways with President Obama on that issue, all kinds of issues. But what, what, how did you get to do that? And, and talk a little bit more about the background of getting it out here, getting how Coleman hadn't been out here which it has been. The Defense Department's been very involved with tech, but yeah. in a different way. There's this you know, peculiar history where you know, Silicon Valley and, and the Pentagon have been tied together in lots of ways yeah. for a very long the time. The internet, for example. Uh, right. Uh, you know, and, uh, you know, going back to Stanford in the, in the 60s, actually, I mean, there's, mm-hmm. so there's this incredible deep history out here of, of uh, federal-funded innovation that uh, has really helped uh, commercial firms flourish. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, uh, interestingly enough, has, has died out a bit. And um, there's definitely been a gap, particularly in the last 15 years, um, a, a gap that, uh, you know, we were in part designed to fill. What was your background? Yes, I was minding my own business, working as a, a national security aide in, in Washington. I was mm-hmm. at the National Security Council at the time. And uh-huh. I'd uh, known That's Ash. That's a small thing. Yeah. What were you doing uh, there? I was, uh, what was I? I was the director of strategic planning. So I was in charge of the office of the NSC that was supposed to look into the future and okay. uh, worry about what to prepare for next. Okay. How but, did you get, by, how, by way, did you get the skills to acquire to do that job? Uh, uh, crystal balls. <laughs> uh, no, I, um, I studied technology policy in college mm-hmm. and um, uh, when I got my PhD and then started off in Washington in national security. And it turns out there's a whole lot of technology challenges in sure. national security. So I ended up All working. Of them. Um, quite extensively for for all the years of the Obama administration um, on on different tech issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and through that, I had a chance to work for the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and work very closely with Ash Carter before he became secretary. Mm-hmm. And as a result, when, when Ash uh, thought about forming this office, he realized that he would need a combination of people to help 
run it, that uh, the office would have to, of course, know Silicon Valley. It would also need to know Washington and the military. And that's an awful lot to ask of one person. So right. he decided to create a partnership and mm-hmm. threw me in together with three other people with very different skills. I was sort of the Washington guy sent out. Right. Um, uh, this was actually a problem because I, at the time, had five suits and one pair of jeans. <laughs> so I had, I had to go buy a bunch of jeans, but did that, threw away some suits and uh, moved out here a couple of years ago. So what was your charge? So you had studied just tech policy. This, and what were the challenges you were looking at at the National Security Council? Well, give examples for us. Sure. Uh, intelligent on our challenges we face. Yeah, well, you know, the, the National Security Council is a, is a fascinating place to work, first of all. But, you know, 90% of the folks there are worried about what's on fire today um, or what's going to be on fire tomorrow. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, of course, uh, is, is appropriate and, and necessary. Um, so knowing that, they decided to create a small office that was trying to figure out what would be on fire five years from now. Uh, that office has uh, kept on going. In fact, the, the person who took my desk, believe it or not, was the one who wrote the deep state banker memo and oh, then got him. fired. Yeah, that's So uh, now I know what my my Was my there a deep state? Office. Yeah. <laughs> Did you find one in the drawer? I actually, you know, I got a deep state sweatshirt made. Okay, good. Um, and I, I was wearing it out here in Silicon <laughs> things, Valley. These things. Yeah. Anyway, so you were there at the NSC and doing, what were you looking at? The what's going on, like whatever crisis had happened at the time. Yes, I was looking a lot actually at, at technology. And, you know, tech is throwing national security a huge curveball right yes. now because you have all the scary things that we all know about. So mm. uh, missiles and uh, you know, nuclear technology from other nations. But then you have other kinds of commercial technology coming online. So um, you have really cheap microelectronics. Mm-hmm. Um, those microelectronics power drones. Um, people can put grenades on drones. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there's all kinds of examples of emerging technology, primarily coming out of the startup world, coming out of Silicon Valley, in essence. Mm-hmm. Um, now, there's a huge opportunity to a lot of this technology from a national or homeland security standpoint, but there's also a huge risk. Right. So we looked quite a bit at that topic. Okay. And what about uh, the Russia involvement in the elections? Was that something you, you all weren't paying attention to? Uh, you know, uh, one of the people that was supposed to speak at my White House farewell in August mm-hmm. uh, of 2016 um, couldn't make it uh, because she had to go to a very important meeting, which I, I later find out was uh, on that topic. On that topic, right. Yeah. So there were definitely a, a small number of people that were working, working on that. Working on that. Um, and so you were here at the NSC and then you you were dragooned out here, essentially. Yeah, and it was fantastic. I right. threw my golden retriever in the back of the car. Drew over the Potomac, threw right. my Blackberry out the window, and, and came out to the, the <laughs> land do. of, you know. We do have Blackberries the, still there. The land of. The only uh, place that still has Blackberries <laughs> Washington, D.C. Um, so, you, uh, what was your idea to come out here? Because, again, a lot of agencies have representation here in Silicon Valley, have opened up offices. Um, they do. I mean, it's pretty small, though, to be honest. It is. I mean, it you really have. Is. So, InQtel is the strategic investment firm that you referenced earlier mm-hmm. that works on CIA. behalf of the intelligence community. Right. And then you have a couple other representatives running around. But the playing field is really pretty open. I mean, there's not too many people out here that ingest a lot of technology and uh, get it working in the federal government. So we we wanted to come out here, uh, actually spend money, actually buy technology, pilot it, and then if it worked, use it at scale in the department. Right. And back at the department, DARPA is doing that too, correct? Yeah. So DARPA is one of the neatest parts of the federal government. It was a privilege to— Defense, what Advanced it? Research Projects Agency. We, we often have acronyms. So, right. you know, we're right. DIUX, they're DARPA. So DARPA has a very unique mission, which is to do really risky moonshot style right. 
uh, R&D. Mm-hmm. So uh, if they're trying it- Like it, Mach 10 planes right, and things right. like it that. It probably won't work, but if it works, it'll be amazing. Mm-hmm. So they invented little things like the internet and mm-hmm. stealth and all the sensors that made precision warfare work. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's DARPA. Uh, DIUX had a very different mission, mm-hmm. uh, which is to say, you know, there's some awesome sh- off-the-shelf technology being produced today whether it's a cybersecurity software suite, uh, whether it's a, a, a robotic uh, uh, ship, uh, whether it's a drone, uh, whether it's a, a new kind of data from commercial uh, commercially available satellite. Uh, and you can use that today. You don't have to do anything further to right. develop it. So our, our office had a very distinct mission from DARPA, which is to buy technology that's available uh, uh, right away. And when you talk about buy, what was that? How much money did you have to do this? Well, I'm proud to announce that the office has just crossed the billion-dollar mark mm-hmm. uh, in uh, just wow. under two years of uh, making uh, investments. This is already in making investments, a billion dollars in investments. Right, and, th- and this, is, uh, this is not making investments in the, in the Silicon Valley venture capital way of, mm-hmm. of buying equity. This is actually buying technology from companies, piloting mm-hmm. it. And then there's a really neat superpower the office has that Congress gave the department, which said if you do a technology pilot and you buy it a certain way, um, you can immediately, and it works, you can immediately allow anyone in the department to buy that technology at scale. Without having to go through... The- without having to recompete, which right. is like, this is like the holy grail of mm-hmm. federal acquisition. And right. we're, we're privileged to be able to, to use so it. So give me examples of what you, you get out here and what do you, how do you introduce yourself to Silicon Valley? Again, Silicon Valley doesn't do a lot of business. It does defense business, but not as much as... You might imagine. Yeah, no. So I mean, it's it doesn't do business with the government uh, really at all. And, There's all and, these people around the Beltway Bandits, and for yeah, for good reason. So if you're a startup, uh, you know your business plan says uh, there's a thing called you're a drone startup, right? Yeah, you know, there's a 25 trillion dollar consumer technology market, and and my tech is going to sell great there. And uh, you know if you go to an investor and you say there's this teeny federal market they have to fill out a lot of paperwork to get into and they don't tell you for 18 months whether you're in or not, mm-hmm. uh, we want to focus on that. You know mm-hmm. you don't get funded. Right. Uh, so we we knew that if we came out here with the regular tools the government uses to buy technology, we'd fail. Mm-hmm. So we knew we had to find a different set of tools, and we did. And um, we, because of, of those new tools, can let a contract in about 30 days from start mm-hmm. to finish rather than 18 months. Right. So give me an example. of So you get out here and how do you introduce yourself? And then I want to know what you invested in. Yeah, no, I, I am from the government. I'm, <laughs> I'm, from, I'm here to help. I'd buy your technology. <laughs> it feels like an episode that uh, David Duchovny should be in. But what, 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 what was kind of looked like David Duchovny? Anyway, how do you approach this world? Because it's, a, it's done in a very different way here. Yeah, sure is. So, you know, we were lucky to lucky to partner with a number of folks that are of the valley and have a network of relationships here mm-hmm. and have run startups and been CEOs at tech companies mm-hmm. and been executives and, and know their way around far better than than I do. So mm-hmm. we were able to uh, use them to help us navigate uh, the rollout here, and, and we did that by first coming up with a particular challenge that we wanted to work on. Somebody in the military would bring us a hard problem they were mm-hmm. dealing with in an actual real-life mission that they figured commercial tech might be able to help with. Give me an example. Um, okay, so uh, maritime surveillance. Um, okay. Right now, it's really expensive to take uh, airplanes and fly them with sensors looking, for instance, for boats carrying drugs. Uh, drugs. Um, wouldn't it be amazing if instead of flying you know, 737s uh, with military gear on them, we could take low-cost drones, put the same surveillance packages on them, either on the surface of the ocean or uh, in the air, um, and perform the same mission for much lower cost? Mm-hmm. So uh, the, the group that brought that particular problem to us 
then uh, caused us to go out and do some market research to ask the question among you know, folks in, in the venture capital community, uh, technologists we know, mm-hmm. do you know anybody that has tech that might be relevant to this problem? If you do, put us in touch. And then we ran a competition and we had an open bidding competition uh, that anybody could enter. Uh, we found some firms that had great tech. They did. Mm-hmm. And we were able to move forward in that particular case uh, with, the, with the tech pilot. And so then they can then sell that directly to the government. Right, and there's some there's some additional benefits. I mean, obviously, the Department of Defense market is is uh, not a small one. No. So, particularly for a startup, there's That's there's what I hear. You know, real opportunity there. Mm-hmm. But uh, we provide some additional benefits too that has been important for startups. Uh, we have things like test ranges that are really easy to get on. So, uh, if you're a flying car company, and we work with a couple of those, mm-hmm. um, we can get you we'll on get our to flying cars. But go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, you're welcome on our test ranges in a hurry. That's a great asset the department has. Uh, mm-hmm. Similarly, we can get you user feedback uh, really quick. So there's a great example of one of the technologies uh, that we deployed to Afghanistan with some troops. Um, they were able to uh, give uh, the engineers um, some real criticism about what wasn't working, which caused three iterations in the tech that made it much better, that allowed that company. The tech actually was an amazing uh, uh, communications, two-way communications device. It was a Mm -hmm. mouthpiece Mm -hmm. uh, made by a company called Sinitis, Mm -hmm. and it allowed hands-free two-way communication using uh, bone conduction technology, which is pretty wild. So uh, it vibrates uh, the jawbone in Mm -hmm. such a way that causes your eardrum to vibrate. So imagine you're uh, on a patrol in Afghanistan, or you're jumping out of an airplane, or you're in a helicopter, there's lots of Noise. You're you're having to you know grab a, grab a walkie-talkie or, or grab a microphone, uh, which is not great because no. or put headphones on to hear right. uh, because you're wanting to keep track of your area, what's going on around sure. you. So this technology, just a little retainer like then you clip under your teeth, uh, proved to be really oh, useful wow. to uh, troops troops uh, on patrol. And then did they buy them then? They did actually. So let's get into the procurement issue because and then when we get we'll talk some more of the things the Defense Department needs going forward. Um, the procurement is they design things very specifically. You know, we always get story after story about that, that they design a toilet in a way. When there's commercial toilet industry is fantastic, they design it in a certain way they need to have it. It creates enormous costs. It's, you know, it's out of control costs. And then all these Beltway bandits take advantage of, of the situation and know how to work the system. And then there's all the people, the revolving doors of military people into military contractors, blah, 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 blah. Because they buy everything. The military buys everything. No, that's that's uh, that's certainly true. Yeah. Um, you know, but that that comes from a particular history, right? Which is, you know, if you're gonna if you're gonna buy a nuclear submarine, um, you can't exactly go on Amazon.com and no, find not today. forty five vendors. Maybe tomorrow. Maybe tomorrow. Yeah. Um, would they get it there faster? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they, they sure would. The result of that is uh, the government system, particularly the defense acquisition rules, are set up to deal with companies where there's often only one vendor. So that raises the question of how do you get a fair price for the taxpayer? And the way that you get a fair price is you list out 45 pages of specifications for the toilet seat. And you say you must meet this in a certain cost, and that's how we know we're getting a fair deal for the taxpayer. Right. Uh, that works okay for a nuclear submarine. Um, mm-hmm. It doesn't work as well for gear that's much more commercially available. Right. And that's where the problem exists, because we don't need a drone company selling drones on Amazon.com today that could be used in a military mission to fill out you know, 65 pages of technical specifications of what their right. drone should be. How did you push back within the administration, I mean, the, the, the way the Defense Department is set up for that? Because you've got all these other people, how do you create that situation? Is it what's the 
impetus for doing it? Well, we got really lucky because in our corner, we had Ash Carter, Secretary Ash Carter, who mm-hmm. really believed in this mission and said, I want you to find a way to do this. And if anybody tells you, you can't do it, you, you bring them to me. Mm-hmm. So uh, we did the first thing you always do in these situations. We took a lot of lawyers to lunch mm-hmm. and we discovered a very obscure provision of law called other transaction authorities that actually lets you do this for advanced technology. You, you get to work outside the federal acquisition rules quickly. You get to sit down with companies. You get to share information. It had everything we were looking for. And shockingly, very few people in the department were using it. Mm-hmm. Uh, why? Well, uh, it was obscure. Not too many of the contracting officers or lawyers were trained in it. Uh, but after taking enough lawyers to lunch, we found a couple that were willing to work with us and mm-hmm. agree that this would be a perfect fit. And uh, we, what you were doing. as a result, became one of the first groups uh, to use it widely and, and to use that special provision I referred to earlier, which allows you to go from pilot to production contract without recompeting. Without recompeting. I want to get back. We're talking to Chris Kirchhoff. He was a former partner at the Pentagon's Silicon Valley office, DIUX, which stands for Defense Innovation Unit Experimental. It's been funding private companies to the tune of a billion dollars in exchange for commercial products that can solve the national defense problems. When we get back, we're going to talk more with Chris about what those problems are and what are some of the things that he got done when he was there. Today's show is brought to you by Betterment. It's tax season, which means it's a great time to think about your finances as a whole. Are you ready for the deadlines coming your way? Are you saving as much on taxes as possible? And are there any accounts that could be working harder for you? Maybe you have an old 401k sitting around. High fees on that account can drain your savings. According to an independent study, rolling over a Betterment IRA could mean 60% lower fees. Betterment is the modern solution to an age-old problem, how to save for a better retirement. Investing involves risk, but the licensed experts at Betterment will help you develop a personalized plan to make sure you have the retirement you deserve. Find out today if you're on track to hit your savings and investing goals. And when you need it, Betterment has the tools and guidance to help you get on track. Recode Decode listeners can get up to one year manage free. For more information, visit Betterment.com decode. That's Betterment.com decode. Today's show is brought to you by IBM. By 2050, the world population will reach nearly 10 billion and food production will need to grow by 70%. What if artificial intelligence could help? Farmers are already using AI to help increase crop yields. Watson and the IBM Cloud provide access to weather data and analyze satellite imagery to help them monitor soil moisture levels and reduce water waste. So as the population grows, more food can be put on tables. Let's put smart to work. Find out how at ibm.com slash smart. We're here with Chris Kirchhoff, a former partner at the Pentagon's Silicon Valley office, DIUX, which stands for Defense Innovation Unit Experimental. It has funded private companies in exchange for commercial products that can solve national defense problems. He's now a visiting technologist at Harvard University's Institute of Politics. Chris, talk a little bit about what some of the things you were looking for when you got here. You, you mentioned a few, the, the problem of dancing with an ear earpiece, essentially. Um, name some other things that you guys invested in, and how did you... Um, how did you find you? You did a you did searches for them, all kinds of research to find them. 
Who did you focus on, the big companies, the Googles, or, or did you go to the smaller startups is what you were looking for? Yeah, so we actually started first by talking to different units in the military and um, mm-hmm. asking them, hey, what's your what's your hardest problem these days? Right. And is, is there something you think we could do to potentially help? And we went from there then to doing market research and asking the question, is there tech somewhere out in the tech world that might be relevant? Mm-hmm. And the big surprise for us, I think, is you know showing up in Silicon Valley, you would expect uh, uh, cybersecurity software, software in general, to be a huge part of, of your portfolio. But, but actually, it turns out most of our deals, uh, many more than software, have gone towards hardware. Um, which I think reflects a, a huge shift in the valley right. here towards right. towards hardware itself. That mm-hmm. that uh, uh, was a real surprise. So, um, a couple examples of, of projects we're really proud of. Um, one actually, uh, funny story. So Eric Schmidt is chairman of the Defense Innovation yes, Board. Yes, he is. Um, uh, took his band of innovators around the world. Is he still that? No. He is. is he? Yep. Okay. Uh, and one of the many stops. Explain the Defense Innovation Board. We don't need to explain Eric Schmidt. Right. Yeah. So the Defense Innovation Board is um, a group of folks from outside the department, each of whom have really deep expertise in an area of tech. Mm-hmm. And they travel together essentially as a bunch of consultants who uh, visit different commands around the world and look at what they're doing and then make suggestions for maybe how they could be doing things better. Better. Mm -hmm. And so the the story here is, I think, representative of the kind of insights they're able to have. They they toured the Air Operations Center in Qatar. Mm -hmm. So this is the war room, if you will, that's prosecuting the air war. We have most of our forward bases there, correct? Right. Qatar. So if you're it's you in know, the news lately, a lot uh, recently, yeah, yes. Uh, so if you're trying to prosecute an airstrike mm-hmm. uh, in in Iraq, uh, in Syria, uh, this is the operations center that yes. does that. And Eric noticed there were these three Air Force captains doodling on uh, a giant whiteboard, and um, they were they had all these numbers and symbols. Mm-hmm. And he said, "Well, what on earth are you doing?" And they said, "Oh, we're we're planning tanker routes. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, one of the hardest things to do." is to get enough um, refueling tankers in the right orbit so that they can link up right. with aircraft to refuel them as as we're, we're getting ready to, to do airstrikes. Mm-hmm. And Eric said, well, you know, there's this thing called software. Mm-hmm. Uh, why are you still doing this manually? And they said, oh, well, we actually have software that does it, but it's awful, it doesn't really work. So the three of us just take 60 man hours every day um, to do this. And it's a real pain because if one thing changes, then we have to get good to go do it all over again. And, the math. And it's like they're in hidden figures. Right. Pores. So Eric, Eric shook his head and Recalculate said... Recalculate those Mars. Yeah, and, and he turned to, to DIUX and said, all right, you guys fix this. Uh, yeah. So we did. Um, we sent some of our Air Force guys forward uh, mm-hmm. with uh, uh, IMAX. Uh, they set up shop. Uh, they actually knew how to code. And in uh, less than really three months, they built a prototype uh, app that uh, allowed the same programming to occur automatically in seconds. Who had built their first one? Um, a defense contractor had built their first one, and, and there was a refresh uh, scheduled. Uh, when we met them, they said, oh, don't worry, you know, the refresh is being worked on now. The initial version should come in 2020, 2021. And right. uh, we were, of course, astonished at the length are of time. Are them? Of course we are. Um, well, I... Yeah, we were proud anyway to send yeah. a very small number of folks forward, and for like of just under two million dollars. Yeah, the fact that they messed up uh, Obamacare just makes it. <laughs> uh, I had an argument with an Obama person when they were like, "I said, well, you know, Tinder makes all these matches because all matching it was all I'm to do is matching. Uh, Tinder makes all these matches every day, millions and millions and millions of matches, and 
They said, are you comparing Obamacare to Tinder? And I said, no, Tinder works. <laughs> At the time, it was funny, but it was, it was the expenses were enormously different between what government was charged in, in terms of software and what you could get almost off the shelf. There's no shelf to get it off anymore, in fact. You know what I mean? It was just a shocking inability to just do software on the fly. But this is a great yeah. you know, way that, that Eric and the, the Innovation Board is able to contribute because they, they know other ways of doing things. Right. And, right. and the process can not only make the U.S. military more effective, but save millions, even billions of taxpayers. What money. I find shocking is that they haven't updated this. This is just, that's the part I don't get. When businesses have, when pe- consumers have. But anyway, that's another rant I can make later. Um, so can you, so, so you, you had the defense, the board that Eric was on, right? Mm-hmm. And then... What you, so what you all did was you would go around and do this all around the world. Right. So we were closely with the Innovation Board. Um, mm-hmm. Ash Carter also founded something called the Defense Digital Service, which mm-hmm. is a bunch of programmers that work on uh, IT issues. So special, special ones. And every agency had those. They were moving those into every agency. Um, well, they, they, that was the ambition at the end of the Obama administration. Right. Uh, but as, as we know, uh, you know science and technology uh, in the current administration is, is a bit more uh, challenging. They aren't there. Uh, <laughs> it's okay. You can say it. There's progress. nobody working there. Um, but that was the goal is to put people in each each agency to redo their IT. And that actually, that brings up one of the bigger lessons that mm-hmm. I've certainly taken away from my time, both in government and, mm-hmm. and out here, which is there is such extraordinary talent out here. And there is no way uh, we're going to get them to apply for a civil service job. Uh, right. Right. And go in. There. So we need to find some kind of way to get folks out here that are ready to take a year or two of public service and kind of like the Peace Corps. Yeah. Send them in. Yeah, that's what they're trying to do. I was just as with Chris Liddell in yeah, as we're trying Washington. To do. But let's get back to other things you guys did. So what else did you, this is a billion dollars, a lot of money. What, that's, that's a pretty fair-sized VC fund, for example. What other things did you do? Yeah, so we, uh, we did a couple projects with uh, flying cars, which mm-hmm. I think really Explain will be the that, future please. of yeah, military transportation. So right now um, we use helicopters to get around the world. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, uh, you know, an aircraft investigator once described to me a helicopter is a million parts flying closely in formation. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that sounds great. Uh, wouldn't it be great to move to an electric-powered vehicle with the same range that has one moving part and right. is silent? Right. So we're experimenting with different ways to deliver both troops. So explain flying car. How do yeah. you conceive of it? Because I know Larry Page is working. A lot of people are working on flying cars. What does that mean? Yeah. So I think you know, there's uh, personal air vehicles. Of course, uh, you know, as people around here say, an industry of the future. That's certainly mm-hmm. true. So our question... VI, someone over... Yeah. Vertical lift and take off. Our, our question is, uh, how can we use this prototype technology to uh, do military missions better? Mm-hmm. And it turns out there's enormous opportunity, both for, for delivering troops and special forces into denied areas. There's also uh, great possibilities for resupply, mm-hmm. uh, all of which right now are being carried out through much... Through helicopters. Right. Right. Explain how it flies. If you're talking about a flying car, how it's different than a helicopter? Um, yeah, it's, uh, well, I mean, it's it's a large drone, essentially. And mm-hmm. um, because it's electrically operated, uh, you have far fewer number of parts than you do in an internal combustion engine. So your mm-hmm. rate of engine failure is much lower. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's fully autonomous. Um, the range, actually, is pretty impressive on uh, certain companies' prototypes. So what you have is actually something that's very close to being operational, something that we so can like almost... like a Tesla of the skies. Yeah, exactly. And does it look like a helicopter? Does it look like a... It looks like something out of a Batman movie. Right. Yeah. Which one? <laughs> Which one? <laughs> Meaning it has four copter... Four, they have a 
propeller, correct? Yeah, there's a few different designs, but mm -hmm. uh, yeah, they all look like, you know, a, a cross between a, something out of a Batman movie and the Jetsons. Okay. And so you would fly those, you fly these cars, and they're not hovercrafts, because that's a whole different area of... The well, people are looking at that. They can hover, right, mm -hmm. which is useful for, for resupply. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, they can do all kinds of things. And so it was our mission to ask the question of, gosh, who could potentially use these? And right. how ought we be planning to use this future technology? Well, everyone put up their hand for that one, right? Like pe regular people want a flying car or the, everybody wants a flying car, presumably. That's, that's true, but it's much more likely that the military will start experimenting with them right. first. First. And so, so they would do them in missions, in resupply, in night missions, anywhere a helicopter goes, correct, right now? Right. Right. And then, and then not, not have to deal with all the maintenance and difficulty. And you can do things too, like disaggregate uh, a squad. So right now, uh, you know, we put a lot of people typically in one or two helicopters. Mm -hmm. um, that's not great uh, for because all kinds of obvious reasons. Down, so wouldn't it be nice to have uh, 10 or 12 uh, area vehicles uh, carrying the same number of people uh, that would not nearly be as vulnerable? Vulnerable and easier and easier to move, presumably less, danger, less dangerous to crash mm -hmm. and things like that. All right, so how much money did you put into that? Who's making those? Um, well, uh, the same companies that you probably know about are, are mm -hmm. making them. And, mm -hmm. and this is, again, an, an example where the Department of Defense can actually play a role helping these companies on their commercial they want path. Them. Right. Uh, because we have, you know, first of all, we have a, a small amount of money to spend. Now, mm -hmm. you know, many of these companies are so capitalized, they, they, mm -hmm. you know, our, our money is, is peanuts. But uh, we also have test ranges that they can go tomorrow and fly on. And Explain we're able to give them. these test ranges. They, you have places where in secret. Uh, <laughs> there are secret test ranges. Yes, uh, most I'm of guessing. them are not. Yeah. And uh, a couple of them are actually very close to the Bay Area. So mm -hmm. DIUX has set up a couple test ranges, one for flying cars, mm -hmm. another actually for um, drones and uh, anti-drone technology, mm -hmm. which mm -hmm. is another real issue on the battlefield. Right. Um, how can we stop uh, ISIL or other foreign adversaries from using drones to, to disrupt? Drop, right. Grenades or right. look at us or any, they can do almost anything, correct? Mm -hmm. Poison. Or disperse them. And we could do the same, presumably. Um, I'm sure we have. Sure. Yeah. Um, so drones is another one. Um, what else, What other things did you put in? Um, a lot of... By the way, there was Homeland's episode. They had a drone. <laughs> and the right one, alt-right shot it down. Yeah, if, 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 if only it all worked like, yeah. like Homeland or the movies. Where <laughs> oh. <laughs> Gary saves everything. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, we uh, have made some great investments uh, in cybersecurity and uh, cloud software, mm -hmm. uh, in some undersea and sea surface technology. Okay, explain uh, the undersea. Well, um, you know, it turns out uh, one of our great advantages militarily is our undersea technology. Mm -hmm. uh, but at the same time, there's been a lot of progress made on the commercial front, uh, mm -hmm. different kinds of, of submersibles and robots that can operate. Um, in, new, in new ways. So that's another great example of, of, of startups out here that are developing technology that, that uh, is for a different purpose altogether, but actually is quite relevant for, for, for military. military missions. So this is submersibles to spy, and presumably that's what submersibles are for. Going you can do that. You can, you can conduct ocean surveillance. You can uh, monitor uh, temperature conditions, which are really important for other Navy missions. So mm -hmm. there's a whole bunch of things you can do. Again, these are DIUX is after broad classes of technology that are going to be transformational in, in, in many ways. Beyond the submarine. Right. Beyond the submarine. Um, and, then, and then give me one other. Um, outfits. Outfits. So, Clothes. Yeah, sure. So Ectoskeletons. Uh, right. Uh, wearables, mm -hmm. it turns out, is another great 
place that there's a heck of a lot of innovation going right now on the on the commercial market. So, mm-hmm. uh, imagine you're on an infantry squad mm-hmm. and you have a mission that involves uh, uh, getting you know miles uh, away in, in in tough conditions. Mm-hmm. Uh, dehydration is actually uh, one of your biggest enemies. Sure. Imagine and if you had heavy. a wearable sensor that would allow the squad leader to know when one of his or her soldiers was in danger of dehydration. Mm-hmm. Uh, little things like that can make an enormous That's difference. That's a great idea. Yeah, and what about um, exoskeletons and things like that? Were you involved in those? Uh, <laughs> we, we, we have not done any exoskeletons, but that again is another great uh, example. For carrying and of, lifting. Right. Uh, They're using them in factory lines uh, now. They, they certainly are, mm-hmm. and uh, which is yet a whole other area of potential innovation of what technology are we using uh, in modern factories uh, that could also be used in defense factories. Right, right, that are already shipyards. being used. Do you, fi- do you find the defense people very open to all this that you were bringing to them, or do they think what, there's this weird group of guys out in Silicon Valley? Yeah, it was, to be honest, pretty mixed. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the defense department is... Um, uh, big. Big, uh, really big, actually, and also very tradition-bound for good reason, because it turns out that, you know, mistakes in war are costly, and mm-hmm. you remember them. Mm-hmm. So um, we really did have, I think, a challenge to prove to people that uh, commercial tech could actually be durable enough and good enough to perform and in cases even outperform existing military technology. Right. Um, and then when you, what would you say your most successful thing is? And when we get back, we're going to talk a little bit about what the big challenges are going forward. But what would you think your most successful investment in your tenure was? To be honest, I think it's just showing that it can be done. Right. So, you can have an innovative, uh, nimble group. Right. So, you know, taking six Air Force programmers and a couple IMACs and for mm-hmm. under $2 million in literally eight weeks coming up with an app that mm-hmm. uh, revolutionized how the air war is fought against ISIL. Mm-hmm. Uh, that caused a lot of folks across the Air Force to, to notice and to ask the question, well, gosh, you know, uh, I have this problem too. You know, could you send some of your guys my way? So right. strangely enough, cultural change, I think, is going to be our biggest lever, if you right, will. Right. And and now what happened in the in the Trump and did they even know you're there? Did they know you were there? What was the what happened under uh, Mattis, I guess? Yeah. So, uh, you know, Secretary Mattis was uh, very kind with his, his time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he comes from a background of, of playing an incredibly transformational role uh, in, in the Marine Corps. So mm-hmm. he, he gets transformation. And he mm-hmm. came out last summer and spent uh, a day and a half here in Silicon Valley. And uh, uh, I think is very enthusiastic about our mission, sees the logic, sees the fit, and uh, wants us to grow. Mm-hmm. And continues to support it. Yep. Continues to how many partners are here now? Uh, so uh, we are uh, a couple of those that started. I've just moved on, and we're in the process of uh, putting a new leadership team in, in place. Mm-hmm. And and that will be the same amount of people doing yeah, doing r- these investments roughly. And you know, the office we started with twelve. Uh, mm-hmm. We're now almost up to seventy or seventy five. You're located where? You're in usual. The yeah headquarters is down in Mountain View mm-hmm. on uh, Moffett Field. Moffett we have Field. a small office in Boston, a right. teeny office in Austin, Texas, and then a, a small office also in the Pentagon. Great. Uh, we're here with Chris Kirchhoff. He just left the Defense Department's, or I guess innovation lab almost, in Silicon Valley, DIUX, which stands for Defense Innovation Unit Experimental. Who came up with that, Chris? Anyway, when we get back, <laughs> we're going to talk about where things are going in defense and what will be happening in the near and far future. I also want to tell you about Too Embarrassed to Ask, my other podcast, which I host or hosted with Lauren Good from The Verge. Oh, past tense is so past bittersweet. Tense. That's me. Every Friday, we answer your questions about consumer tech. Lauren, 
What have we talked about this week? It's this week, somber. I tried to make Kara Swisher cry. And it didn't I work. tried to cut through that steely veneer she's mm-hmm. got there. As she's angrily texting and calling tech executives and basting them <laughs> for their latest mishaps. And I tried to cut through to this no. soft inner core of Kara's heart and make her cry because I'm I'm leaving. Do you know what happens when you cover through the shell? There's another shell and then another. I'm very sad you're leaving, but not that sad. I'm relatively sad. I'm like a seven sad. You're like a seven out of what? Out of six? Always out of 10. No, you can just make up your own scale. (laughs) Anyway, explain what you're doing, Lauren. Where are you going? I'm I'm sad uh, to be leaving Vox Media, but I'm going to Wired and I'm very excited to Mm -hmm. do journalism at Wired. They're great. They're a great publication. You've been with us for a million years. I've been with you since 2011, all things D. Yeah, wow. And prior to that, I worked at the Wall Street Journal where I uh, peripherally worked with Wall in New World. That's where I got to know Wall. And I passed you in the hall. That was great. Yeah. And you were like, who Good is times. this person Good trying times. to say hello to Good me? Good times. Well, Lauren's a talented, she's a talented maker of video. She's a talented reporter. She's great on stage. She's got, she's obviously a very good podcaster, largely held up by my talent, but still she does a good <laughs> job. We had a great talk about her favorite podcasts and there are a lot of them. And uh, we kicked it off with obviously the Juicero one and then we worked our way down. <laughs> Juicero. And then we worked our way down to Fake news and everything. Let's not tell them. And Walt, the Walt Mossberg retirement yeah. episode, which yeah. we revisited, which yeah. is, you know. I right, don't give it all away. Okay. 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 It was really, nothing? but you know what? We talked a lot about well, you and I. Oh my God. You well, and it's I? time to break up now. All so right. sad. So sad. Although it was a great, oh my God. Don't sing. Do not, it was really great discussion. Are you doing, are you quoting Steve Jobs to Bill Gates? Do you remember when he did that? No, it's a That's voice to men song. I know, but he was, he was quoting something. When, oh my God. Still you it has can't to stop. It was a great discussion until right now. We hope you go listen to it. You can find Too Embarrassed to Ask on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, wherever you listen to podcasts. That's Too Embarrassed to Ask. See you there, Lauren. How can I miss you if you won't go away? We're here with Christopher Kirchhoff. He's a former partner at the Pentagon Silicon Valley Defense Office, D-I-U-X. Stands for Defense Innovation Unit Experimental. How did you come up with that awful name? I like D-I-U-X, but the rest of it. I know, I know. Well, we first of all, we had to have an acronym because, yes. you know, if we didn't have an acronym, they wouldn't let us start the office. Cool. I don't know. Uh, we figured X was kind of cool, um, you know, but I, I definitely wouldn't turn to the Pentagon for Silicon yeah. Valley Yeah, how about Wakanda? Um, so now you're a visiting, te- I'm going to get to Wakanda, we're visiting technologists at Harvard University's Institute of Politics. So let's talk about where the challenges are face, we face from a defense point of view um, going forward, something you, I assume you look at. Um, obviously, uh, I'm, I'm joking about Wakanda, but I'm not. This idea of how we think about innovation, how we incorporate it into our, our def- defenses. Um, this doesn't seem to be an administration that's super interested in science and technology. Um, the, the science and technology office is not staffed. It hasn't been staffed. It was a new thing with President Obama, but the, the office of science and technology has always been there for uh, half a dozen administrations, I think. Um, and it doesn't, I don't think it has a head yet, does it? It doesn't, does it? No, it does not, which is like frightening in a lot of ways. So can you talk about what our challenges are now in in the near term without science advisors at the White House? Yeah, so I, you know, I was really Im- uh Impre- I'm assuming the different agencies still are interested in science, some of them. Uh, y- yes. Uh, no, that's that's uh, certainly true. So, you know, the United States is in this peculiar predicament, right? We're uh, 4, 4.4% of the world's population. We still command a quarter of global GDP. Mm-hmm. Um, that's why we have nice houses, nice big screen televisions, uh, uh, all that. Um, our 
challenge going forward is is our economic competitiveness. How on earth can we keep generating so much of the global economy with so few people? Mm-hmm. And uh, if we're going to be successful at this, we're going to have to make sure the leading part of our economy, the part of our economy that's most dynamic, the tech sector, uh, really succeeds. Yeah. And the tech sector at the moment, uh, if you haven't noticed, uh, is producing crazy, wild, disruptive technology. Mm. And that technology will not be successful without uh, the government clearing the road for 100%. it. 100%. So what I worry about most now is uh, whether that road can get cleared, mm-hmm. uh, whether there are enough people out here in the tech sector talking to people in Washington Which about they are not. what needs to be done. Right. So what talk, talk about the areas. I mean, I'm, I'm assuming AI, robotics, automation, infrastructure, um, self-driving, all kinds of things like that. Yeah. Or, I'm, is there more? I'm a cybersecurity. No, it's it's all these things. and uh, Non-hackable elections. <laughs> wouldn't that be nice? Yeah. Uh, and these things are all important. And one of the greatest challenges is just with people, because mm-hmm. the people that tend to know the most about these technologies um, are not employed in Washington. No. They're employed far away. Um, so that creates a challenge to begin with. How on earth do we get the people that know the most about the technology talking to the people that are in charge of writing regulations? All right. So let's start with that. I mean, there were, or there was, there. There was a big push by the Obama administration to get techies to come for short amounts of time, and they fixed Obamacare. They fixed a lot of things. They moved in and fixed things, and now they're they're, they're really having a hard time recruiting anybody. Correct? They they are, and that's something I worry about a lot. You know, uh, we did this big review in the White House that looked across uh, radical merchant technology, uh, right? And and where would where would it just completely turn upside down the mission of certain federal agencies and departments? So mm-hmm. uh, the Department of Treasury, for instance, mm-hmm. you know, it regulates money, you know, right. something kind of important. Um, and it also, it turns out, is the biggest bank for the government. It clears a lot of payments for federal agencies. So mm-hmm. uh, blockchain uh, is going to yes. be something that completely changes the Department of Treasury's mission. So we asked the question, well, how many people are there today in the Department of Treasury that have enough expertise to participate in a peer conversation about blockchain? I would say zero. Uh, And that was the answer, actually. Mm -hmm. And it's not a surprise because uh, the Department of Treasury doesn't have a DARPA. They haven't Mm -hmm. been recruiting for PhD cryptographers. Mm -hmm. But it turns out they need to. Yeah. And and desperately. Well, they've got a Goldman Sachs banker running it who has some... An unusual manner. I think, I think we can be kind. That's a kind way of putting it. Um, who doesn't seem interested in that? Correct. I mean, that's is, is that where it comes from? The top of the Department of Treasury. Well, I think I think on on the tech issues, it has to come from the top because mm-hmm. um, if you're going to get people in the department, um, you know, not through the usual means, right, mm-hmm. and get them involved in the top level policy conversations, uh, you're going to be have to be the one that opens that door, right? And these are the departments, presumably involved with regulating big, uh, uh, blockchain, which they won't be able to regulate at some point because it's unregulatable at, on some level if it's being created by not them or being monitored by not the government. And so you can just imagine if you were to walk across you know, each building in Washington and ask the people mm-hmm. there, what do you do and how is it likely to change in the next five years based on what's being invented in a garage mm-hmm. somewhere? Uh, boy, there are some real challenges that we're going to face. So, going treasury, forward. blockchain, and what else? Let's go through them. 
Treasury blockchain. Yep, I think uh, you know blockchain, other technologies, and other are, cryptocurrency. Right, uh, you know that that of course impacts the intelligence community's mission. Uh, mm-hmm. It also impacts, believe it or not, the development mission. Because blockchain is going to revolutionize how a lot of development takes place, whether mm-hmm. it's land titles or uh, new financial technologies for the developing world. Right. Uh, similarly, you know the Department of State. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, there's this thing called digital now <laughs> that yeah. turns turns out changes how we we communicate. Right. So almost every department or agency across the government is facing some real curveballs, mm-hmm. and the curveballs are coming fast. And most of them are not equipped with the kind of people so or the kind of offices the, that you would the, want. What uh, the challenge Department of State faces? Yeah. Well, uh, you know, the Department of Defense is lucky because it does have um, places like DARPA that are part right. of it um, that attract top commercial talent that are uh, right. the best at what they do. And they can... And those are big challenges. Right. They, can, challenges. they can look around the corner and say, hey, boss, you know, there's this thing that you ought to know about, you know, called stealth technology. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, uh, the Defense Department is one of the few parts of the government that has an advanced technology shop like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's because, you know, 30 years ago, nobody thought advanced technology was relevant to, uh, say, diplomacy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it certainly is today. Right. And so I think we face a real transformational challenge of how do we re-engineer the State Department to have in it some technologists that can uh, think about how diplomacy might be different so going forward. How would you, what would they need? Um, what are what, the issues they need to focus on? Right. Um, so, uh, you know, a lot of the State Department's mission is uh, reporting and communicating. Uh, so that, of course, has you know, completely changed. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of the State Department's mission also is uh, American values. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it turns out our values um, are actually bound up quite a bit in our technology, mm-hmm. uh, in our technology, um, in the kind of mobile phone operating systems that uh, we create, in the kind of uh, internet we advocate for. Right. Uh, these are all deeply technological uh, areas. And, you know, again, ask the question, uh, how many uh, computer scientists are there today working at state? Uh, you know, the, Zero. Uh, the answer uh, yeah, is small. Small. So that's, and that's everything, everything, everywhere they operate around the world has to have some technological element. And there's this funny story. I think um, there's something like 140 foreign governments that have a presence here in Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. Uh, and until last year, uh, the State Department didn't have anybody here. Right. Who do they have here? They had one person um, who um, I think got, got fired. Oh, okay. Or, or, or sent along um, when the administration changed. Right. Okay. That's not good. Uh, another department. Name another one. Education. Oh, good God. Yeah, so education is, is uh, not something I've personally yeah. uh, looked at. But, I mean, there again, uh, look at EdTech. You know, the mm-hmm. revolution going on in yep. EdTech. Uh, does the Department of Education have a DARPA-like appendage mm-hmm. um, yeah. that is uh, imagining what the future of EdTech is going to bring and, and, and how, how, how that will affect uh, American education policy? Right. Um, so to every single department in our government, uh, they have to be thinking about that. What about... Um, this idea that they were going to... I mean, I know that Chris Liddell and, and, and Jared Kushner were always pushing the Office of American Innovation. Pretty much everybody quit it. Uh, I think a lot of the, the people that were on these different business councils have left over, I think it was Charlottesville. Um, how do you get Silicon Valley reengaged then with the government, or this government, at least? 
Well, um, and you do have a president who seems entirely uninterested in science and technology. And yeah, in fact, I mean, is hostile to it. Uh, you know, uh, these are these the past the past months uh, have not been kind mm-hmm. uh, to those who care deeply about this topic. But I think it's just crucial to step back and notice that as a nation, this this is our future. This is the one thing we cannot afford to so get wrong. So why are we affording and getting it wrong? Um. I think a lot of people in Silicon Valley are are still sort of pretending that that uh, what happens in Washington doesn't really matter to mm-hmm. them, mm-hmm. and I think a lot of people in Washington just uh, don't have easy ways to get uh, to get the knowledge they know they need. Mm-hmm. How do they get people? Because it really is you've got to convince tech people to come there. These people have jobs everywhere, and are easily available them here and across the world. Really. How do they? How do you entice them to come to government? Sure, I'll give you one great example we found um, in USA. They have something called the Global Development Lab. That's mm-hmm. uh, all about technology innovation and global it, development. USA. Okay. And it was run actually by a former Apple employee named Ann May uh, Chun, mm-hmm. and she uh, within that lab had uh, uh, the operational innovation team um, mm-hmm. that was uh, the team designed to get to yes. Mm-hmm. So it had people from the legal department, from the HR department, from the contracting department, and whatever right. problem was brought to that team, mm-hmm. you know, hey, how do we get this Silicon Valley executive in for a year? You know, how can we do this contract faster? Mm-hmm. They were given the charge of coming up with a way to do it. Mm-hmm. So they actually hired a technical recruiter. Mm-hmm. Uh, imagine that, the government hiring somebody who is an expert in recruiting technologists no, I can't skills. believe we're saying imagine that. They should it's like 2018 at this point. Right. right. Uh, I mean, you would you would think, right? But you know, it turns out that the bulk of the government, of course, is uh, governed by the Civil Service Act, which mm-hmm. uh, you know whose history goes back to the, the age of the telegraph. It was mm-hmm. designed originally to staff the post office. Um, great at providing general administration, uh, not so great at bringing in niche tech skills for for term tours. Mm-hmm. Uh, yet, you know, despite that, every department agency generally has a couple hiring authorities on the books that, uh, if leadership says, "Hey, go do this," mm-hmm. um, you can get people in. Mm-hmm. So, what do you imagine in the? Because I, you know, I see other governments moving very heavily into technology within the government sector. Now, now I'm sure they're not ever as. Um, perfect as any of them. They're all sort of large bureaucracies, so you're going to fall prey to that. Um, But what are the biggest issues that our country faces, do you think? I think one of the, again, going back to the importance of people, Mm -hmm. um, you can sit around a table in Washington and not even know that technology is in the middle of the issue you're trying to solve if you don't have somebody around a table, the table that can see it. So if you don't have a tech team, I mean, you have a lawyer in the room and an economist in the room, and right. you know, everybody in Washington has got their lawyer and their economist. Mm-hmm. But if you don't have your technologist, um, you don't even know what you're missing. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the first and, and probably the most fundamental mm-hmm. uh, part of the solution. And then of the issues, what do you think the most critical that we have to focus in on? I think we're... At a moment where technology is probably a part of almost every major issue in one way or another, I, I think you can't any longer uh, say, "Oh, well, you know, here are the four issues that technology is a part of, and the twelve that aren't," and right. then you know, divide divide your staff that mm-hmm. way. And that's part of the challenge because this is different than it was uh, even ten years ago. So you have to have a technologist at every juncture of governing. And it's, to, it's totally ordinary to have a lawyer and an economist on your on your staff. Yes, and in it fact, is. They, I know. they have career paths that are set up to support that. Right, uh, but not for technologists. Right. All right, so what are you doing at Harvard? I want to finish up. What are you studying? I'm having a ton of fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, 20 years after I was a freshman, mm-hmm. and got involved in public policy. There's a little corner of Harvard called the Institute of Politics. It's mm-hmm. a living memorial to John F. K. Uh, 
uh, I'm teaching a seminar on the topic of public leadership in a technological age. So whether mm -hmm. you're a computer science undergraduate or somebody studying government uh, or classics for that matter, mm -hmm. what ought you know about technology, about how it's produced, about how it's governed, so that you can be a future leader on this issue and get ready to join the conversation after you graduate. And what is your one main thing you tell them? That well, you have to. Yeah, you must. right. Um, uh, ask not what you can know. Uh, so we, we, uh, we get together and we, we host a bunch of speakers from tech, uh, also uh, from tech policy in Washington. Mm -hmm. um, we're looking for uh, uh, ways to get internships for this group of folks so they can actually go experience what, what tech is. And I think what we tell them is that uh, there definitely is a role, whatever educational tract you're on, to be able to learn more. Whether, you know, if you're a computer scientist, uh, Harvard just debuted an ethics and computer science course this semester. Mm -hmm. um, something, it turns out, is kind of, kind of relevant. Yes, very. Uh, but, you know, if you look at the curriculum on the whole, it's certainly not built with the idea in mind that we're in the business of producing leaders that have to be able to grapple with, with technology tech in, in, in civic life. Absolutely. All right, Chris, this has been really interesting. Um, if, if, you, if I had to worry about one thing, I really do like this idea of a flying car, but if I had to worry about one thing, and I know you're not, you don't want to pick one, what is the thing that you think that government needs to focus most strongly on in the tech area? Sure. Uh, well, I, you know, I had a chance to work on Ebola, uh, on the White oh, House Ebola, Ebola Task Force. That's not coming back, is it? Uh, well, the thing is we're, we're kind of changing the world in the wrong way, right? So we're deforesting, we're laying roads and air travel everywhere. And, and when we deforest, we, we create these things that scientists call um, uh, you know, ecosystems where species clump together that normally don't. And it turns out that's basically like creating the world into a giant petri dish for emerging oh, infectious okay. disease. Uh -huh. um, so I actually worry the most, to be honest, about pandemics. I'm kind of in the Bill Gates camp on that one when I'm it comes with to you security on pandemics. Threats. You know, I'm obsessed with pandemics. I don't know Do you have any Perel in the office? We should probably... I have a lot. I'm oh, good. I have a lot, but I'm a pandemic obsessor, as think. But anyway, thank you so much. This has been very depressing. Um, but we do need technologists in government, and we this administration really needs to focus on it, but I'm not, I have to say I'm not very hopeful about that at this point. But look, we can always hope things can change. Anyway, this has been Chris Kierkoff. Uh, he's the former partner at the Pentagon's Silicon Valley office, DIUX, which stands for Defense Innovation Unit Experimental, which is still operating here. It funds private companies in exchange for commercial products that can solve the national defense problems. Thank you, Chris, for coming. Thanks for having me. Chris, it was great talking to you. Thanks for coming on the show. If you enjoyed the interview as much as I did, be sure to subscribe to the show. You can find all our past interviews in whatever app you use to listen to this or on our website, recode.net slash podcast. If you have a minute, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That helps other people find the show. Now that you're done with this, you should check out our other Recode Radio podcasts. On Recode Media with Peter Kafka, you'll hear no-nonsense interviews with some of the smartest people in media and entertainment. I also host Too Embarrassed to Ask along with Lauren Good of The Verge, where I answer all of your questions about consumer tech. And on Recode Replay, you can find audio from Recode's live events, including the Code Conference and Code Media. Thanks for listening to this episode of Recode Decode, and thanks to our editor, Joel Robbie, and our producer, Eric Johnson. I'll be back here on Monday. Tune in then. Today's show is brought to you by IBM. By 2050, the world population will reach nearly 10 billion and food production will need to grow by 70%. Farmers are working with IBM and Watson to help increase their crop yields. Let's put smart to work. Find out how at ibm.com smart.